Welcome to Rector's Cupboard, a podcast for people who are interested in questions of culture and faith. We ask these questions from outside the institutional structures of religion. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you enjoy and benefit from the conversation. There's an interesting documentary on Netflix. Well, there's a number, but the one I'm thinking about, I think it's called The Last Blockbuster. And it talks about blockbuster video and the very last one, which is in a small town in Oregon. It plays, it's interesting that it's on Netflix because Netflix maybe was part of killing blockbuster. When I was a kid, you spent your Friday night or your Saturday night when I was a young adult going to the video store and standing in front of a wall and selecting a video and you hope they had it in and all that kind of stuff and you had late fees and everything else. And now there are no more blockbusters. Uh, The Bible never said that the gates of hell would not prevail against blockbuster, but apparently the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But at times it can seem like we're waiting for the last uh, blockbuster to close. The church in many people's minds is in decline. You may have participated in church Um, quite exhaustively in your past, and now maybe don't go to church at all. What is the church? Who is the church? Does the church have any role in society right now? Uh, What do pastors think about that? What do others think about that? Here at Rector's Cupboard, we were really pleased to be invited to enter into conversation with a friend of ours, David Goa, who is an author and museum curator, um, writer on all kinds of different topics of faith and culture, uh, he's the founder of the Ronning Center for Religion and Public Life, and uh, he's a bit of an Orthodox theologian as well. And so he said, why don't we talk about the church, who the church is, what the church is, and what people have to say. So this series is what has so far come out as a result of that uh, invitation. We speak with a number of people who care about the church and are willing to ask some of those honest questions about where the church is at and what the future looks like for the church in the days ahead. We've got uh, six episodes, I think, seven episodes, and, uh, and we'll be releasing those uh, every couple of days. And so if this is the first time you're listening, if you're listening as they're released, that will be the cadence. We hope you enjoy the conversation. The Church in Between Times, Episode 3. In this episode, we speak with Ross Lockhart, Dean at St. Andrew's Hall in Vancouver. In conversation with Ross, we reflect upon the idea of the decline of the church and of Christendom and how these things may actually be positive for the future of Christian faith. Some years ago, I read uh, a wonderful study of St. John Chrysostom, Mm. that very hard-assed monk who... um, became the Patriarch of Constantinople, and whose bishops, of course, eventually walked him to death. Uh, It's interesting how bishops can martyr their own. You don't just need the state to do it. When I read that, Chrysostom had a deacon for a period of time who was also a remarkable character, tough, tough character. But I had thought by the time Chrysostom came on the scene, the church was sort of formed, fully formed. You know, you think of these great church fathers and how, I mean, it's a natural habit of mind, I guess, to assume that the church somehow exists by then. And certainly after the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the church exists. The church knows who she is. The church has a well-formed body. Reading, it was J.N. Day Kelly's wonderful study of Chris Austin, the English historian. Reading that, I realized, my, oh, my. The period from Chrysostom, or a bit after him, perhaps. We could even say the 9th, 10th century, to 1960 is a period that I could, I could not understand the first four centuries of the church 
if I had only lived in that period until the 1960s. But since I live after the 1960s, where Christendom has evaporated, where the church is back on its heels in, in some ways, we can understand the first three centuries of the church and a little bit after that much better now than we ever could from the period after through the 1960s. And in the last couple years, as I've been thinking about the church a bit, it seems to me this is even more so. So I've been interested in this question of who is she? Who is the church? What is the church? How is the church? And those that are in positions presumably of leadership, what's their vocation? What are they doing? What are they animating or what do they imagine themselves to be doing? So I wanted to have mm-hmm. conversations with a variety of people, so I'm grateful to, to Todd and, and to you for inviting people and we have a chance to sit and talk and think about it. Thanks so much, David, and, and we're really, really pleased to our, the, the person who we're having a conversation with this afternoon, um, Ross uh, Lockhart, who is the Dean of St. Andrew's Hall, the Presbyterian College at uh, the Vancouver School of Theology. Ross has been a congregational minister himself for many years. Um, and now is in, in this role. Ross, in I think it was you that alerted me to a book a number of years ago, six years ago or something, a study on uh, church attendance in Canada. And what was that book? I can't remember what it was called. It was some clever title. But anyway, I, I remember in that, and basically it was talking about the story of decline. And um, David, you start us off by thinking about post-1960, post-Christendom. That book um, highlighted the the year in which church attendance per capita was at its peak in Canada. And that was 1971. That somehow the shadow still of, of Christendom lingered for a while, but after that it was declining and declining fairly rapidly. I think it was probably Leaving Christianity by Brian Clark and That's Stuart MacDonald. That's it. McGill Queen's Press, the great guys at, at U of T. Okay. Yeah. And... Uh, and it said basically this, this decline now is across the board, mainline, evangelical, all the, and uh, so it was a really interesting study, but thinking of that as you intro us here, David. So Ross, thank you so much for joining us. You have a particular uh, vantage point from which to offer your um, reflections on, you know, who is the church, what is the church, and what about vocation. So we're glad that you're uh, here talking to us today, David. And you're at St. Andrew's Hall. I am. This uh, seat of Presbyterian learning. Indeed. So I would like to begin with, if you would just spend a few moments giving us your take on how the Presbyterian Church and its great theologian, the Swiss Calvin, Mm. and... Karl Barth, perhaps. Mm-hmm. How did they speak to this question of who she is? Mm-hmm. Who is the church? Yeah, well, first of all, it's an honor to be here with all of you. Thank you for this conversation. When uh, I heard that we're going to you know, be addressing this question of what is the church and what is the was our understanding of church, the, the question of ecclesiology and reformed ecclesiology, as, as you're inviting us into, is, is such an important question. I think, you know, in terms of, of the history of the church and understanding of the church, today we would, in a reformed sense, our, our doctrine would speak of the church as Christ and his people in worship and service to the world. So there's a sense in which um, you know, it, without Christ, there is there is no church. And so from a reform perspective, of course, when we look at Calvin and Geneva, there is a, a working out of the Reformation principles vis-a-vis um, state and church and trying to get a sense of 
where the uh, where the duties fall, um, where they keep each other in check, and so forth. Um, and I think you know there's a real a real challenge when we look at the Reformation understanding of the church and of leadership, because of course we we have this sense in which. Um, the Reformation, as those of us who are Protestants love to um, love to kind of carry the banner and talk about the significant changes, but of course the Reformation took place within, you know, a, a worldview in which not not so much changed as we as we'd like to think, right? In the sense of when we today, in a post Christendom landscape, look at the uh, teaching from Ephesians around uh, apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic shepherding or pastoral teaching and the teacher role um, we we recognize that even for calvin he could not conceive of the kind of leadership that we actually need today in post-christendom space right so when when you look at calvin's commentaries on ephesians 4 he makes bold statements that uh, the first three offices of apostle, prophet, evangelist were only required in the early church. And once the church was established, your beautiful opening opening reflection about when, you know, when did the church take shape? Calvin writes in his commentaries, we no longer needed those three offices. And then he has this beautiful little caveat where he says, unless there comes a time where there is, quote, a decay of religion, then those offices need to mm. be reconstituted, and so I, I think what we see in um, you know in reform theology is a weddedness to this church state tension, right, and and a sense of playing that out. And yes, in Europe we have established state churches, but you know the reformed churches often in North America acted as if they were state churches, right. Um, with kind of the power and the privilege that comes along with that. I think in BART we start to see a really helpful um, transformation and understanding of uh, the church and also, you know, the vocation of the Christian as witness. Mm-hmm. And, and to me that's always been such a, a helpful kind of pivot, correction, leaning into the early days when Christendom was starting to to show signs of the end of its uh, lifespan. And I think today for us, you know, when we think in terms of witness, it's such a freeing concept uh, for for those who still clutch and grasp after the, the power that is no longer ours in the church and society to to gesture and and point instead to what God is doing in the world is a, is a profound transformation of understanding of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be part of a Christian witnessing worshiping community. Mm-hmm. So witnessing in that sense is attentiveness not to what your institution is doing mm-hmm. but to what is unfolding. Correct, and it requires such um, a commitment and a practice and a posture of discernment mm-hmm. that is um, paying attention. Todd knows I'm cheesy. I would use language of praying attention to what God is doing in the world, while at the same time, uh, almost like letting a rope out, letting go of our dependence on human agency. And where I've been most um, humbled and encouraged when I see church being church today it is in places where there is such profound awe and wonder and respect for God's agency and um, an opportunity to uh, really let go of the sense that we're behind the levers of society, yes, Mm. but even church, Mm. even church. And letting go of those levers within the church is sometimes the, the hardest thing that I've witnessed people able to do. I know from my own reading of, of Bart and your mention of vocation, I mean, this is a central principle to mm-hmm. him, even in terms of, of, you know, not just like the call of the Christian, but the, the call of everyone to yeah. bear witness to the unfolding. And that this is something that is, you know, you know, good Christian faith helps us to see this beyond our kind of tribal divisions. Mm-hmm. And, but that for him, the, this is my reading, so I'm not saying it's proper, but something that's enlivened me as I read the sections mm-hmm. on vocation and Bart, 
in, in my evangelical background, the the key question was always salvation. Mm-hmm. And so witness meant go and tell somebody about Jesus so then they can maybe get saved too. Right. The difference in, from what I'm picking up in BART is the key question was never salvation, it's vocation. Mm-hmm. That this is the mark of, and then, uh, but that, and bearing witness to the fact that we're all participants in this vocation grant given by God in the world, right? It's interesting for me then to, what does that have to say for this particular time? Mm-hmm. Like you've I just kind of alluded to some of the challenges we face right now yeah. in the church, clergy are facing, we've talked about with some other people we've been speaking with, um, kind of a crisis in the church or, mm. or you know, clergy having some vocational uh, distress. Mm. Uh, what's some of your reflection on that in both education, mm. some people who are not clergy yet? Yeah. Because I would think they wouldn't be marked by that as much. Right. Yeah. And then from some of the people you work with who might be feeling some of this. Yeah. So, I mean, it's what a curious and wonderful time to prepare to lead God's people in worship, witness, and service in the world. Um, I, I think that um, I have to say I'm, I'm amazed at the quality of students that we have at Vancouver School of Theology. Right now, there are people who come with eyes wide open to the church and the world as it really is. Mm. Um, you know, I, when I was in seminary in the 90s, it was all a talk about um, tent-making ministries, and people were all sexed up on, you know, let's be more like the Apostle Paul. I also noticed that everyone who wanted to be like the Apostle Paul <laughs> was an early retired school teacher with the best pension plan imaginable, mm. right? So it's like, mm, let's see you how much you're make actually tents. putting on the <laughs> yeah. table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no risk here. They were getting their tents from Mountain Equipment Co-op <laughs> yeah. with their pension money, right? So where I see a very different kind of student now. They're, they're aware that God is God is calling them to lead. Um, as you know, Todd, I've been involved in the Presbyterian Church in Canada's um, church planting uh, movement, cyclical, and so there is that attempt to recover um, the apostolic uh, mm-hmm. role within the church. Uh, and so I, I think what I've noticed more and more is the students that I have are not simply wanting to take over a church and manage a congregation. I'm not saying they don't want to be congregational ministers, Mm -hmm. but they don't want to just maintain status quo. And so some are drawn to a planting ministry. But I I tell our students, our Presbyterian students, and any of the students that I teach at VST, that that my desire is to prepare you for one of two outcomes after this place, if you intend to serve the church and ordain ministry, either church planting or church revitalization. Mm. There's there's nothing left. Yeah, it's not like there'll be a position there. Yeah, no one's that. handing them I'll like be a the, stable I'll be the next minister. I'll be the next minister of right. that thing. Yeah, exactly. No, that doesn't exist exactly. anymore. No. And actually, you know, in the church planning world, some of the most um, challenging cases are um, longer serving clergy who are interested in exploring this, but they assume that means full stipend and full pension contributions, right? So so there's this sense in which are, are we able to... I, I, I don't know what that is. I don't know what pension <laughs> is. No, that's yeah. never... Right, so, so, so this kind of um, the superstructure around what it means to be clergy, I think, is one of the last steps of, of disestablishment, right? It's like the you know 19th century clergy lands debates of Upper Canada, right? Like it's kind of finally letting go of some of the superstructure around what it means to be a respectable, stable leader of an institution, mm. and rather see um, you know this as a, a more of a quest and an opportunity to um, yes, equip the saints for ministry. That's job number one, but to do so from a perspective where you're not simply the full time employee mm-hmm. of a faith institution. I'd like to to just respond to to what you said just a little bit with a some thoughts from the past. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I like the past. <laughs> <laughs> Anything after the fifth century is not of much interest to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My sense is that in the very early church, this question of vocation was was central. Mm-hmm. And the vocation was understood through the icon of the Theotokos. Mm-hmm. The Theotokos, shown there with child, holding the word, was understood to be the icon of the human vocation. Mm. 
All human beings are called to be birth givers of divine love in the world. That's our vocation. Nothing else. Everything else is in terms of that, mm. not the other way around. And I know in my own life, uh, growing up in the Lutheran Church and what have you, uh, it was pretty much incumbent, of course, to, at least for a period of time, assume you had a call and to then try and play that out. So I was scouted by the Detroit Red Wings and the Chicago Blackhawks, so I went to a training camp. Nice. And it was the most brutal athletic experience of my life and convinced me that I wanted to study philosophy and theology. (laughs) So that's how my call came about, Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of a hockey stick over my head. (laughs) So for a period of time, imagining that call meant ordained ministry. And then uh, over a period of several years, the details are, are secondary, realizing that, uh, first of all, if that were to happen, it would be a disaster for the church mm, yeah. <laughs> and probably a disaster for me. Yeah. But that awakened me to a sense that at least within my, you know, and I treasure my, my Lutheran patrimony and that part of the way the Lutheran Church was influenced by the evangelical church as well. I mean, I treasure that. That's a gift to me. But the sense of vocation, I had a growing sense that this was skewed, that uh, they really did not believe in the priesthood of all believers. It was something you paid lip service to, but it wasn't really there. And I know in my conversations with David Jennings, he's given me a very rich sense of how, at least for him, and out of his part of the Calvinist world, that sense of the priesthood of all believers was very lively. Mm -hmm. I remember him telling me about his father, a fine Presbyterian Mm -hmm. clergyman, saying to him how important it was to have Christians who were lawyers and Christians who were businessmen. And I think... I think the great Mm -hmm. Calvin writes about that and speaks about that. And that, of course, is touching on this vocational matter. So speak a little bit more about how that vocation is understood. I've given you uh, an image to respond to here Mm -hmm. from the ancient church that the only vocation human beings have is to be the Theotokos is to be birth givers of divine love in the world, however that may unfold. It's a wonderful image, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that God-bearing life that we are called to. I, I want to put in a, a cheerful word for the Reformed tradition and why maybe the priesthood of all believers actually has um, deeper roots. And I would, I would give a huge credit to Calvin in the fourfold offices that he developed, that yes, you have ministers, but you have elders— and deacons, and doctors of the church. And it's in the elders and the deacons that's taken quite seriously within the Reformed tradition. You know, if you look in the Presbyterian Church in Canada today, the the ordination vows of a teaching elder, of a pastor, are almost identical to a ruling elder. And I was raised, you know, my childhood minister was trained in the Church of Scotland and so forth, and I was always raised to understand ruling elder was not that they are to rule over, but a ruling elder is like a ruler that we are to to measure Mm -hmm. our spiritual lives Mm -hmm. against the godliness of those elected by the congregation to have oversight on our spiritual development. And my own childhood bears that out. The elders of my home church had a profound influence on my life, especially as a teenager, trying to figure out what I believed. And so I think there's that, that broadening of the sense of ministry and call. Um, I do find it delicious when I visit churches that think they're using kind of all the right terminology. And I, I cringe when I look in a bulletin and it says minister, the congregation. I always just find that so cheesy because then for the next hour, all you see is the ordained minister doing everything at the front, mm. right? And I think, okay, now I know what's going on here. And so that broadening of a vocation is important like what what does it mean to be a public school teacher today 
and and bear divine love in that place when you're in a space that likely you cannot say the name of Jesus, but you can show the love of Jesus. What does it mean to be a border guard or a business person and to live out that vocation? I think that, you know, the healthiest congregations I know take that seriously and, um, you know, kind of in a, a new begin type way, understand election that we're, you know, saved to be sent. And that's not just about our relishing in our savedness, but that we are, you know, when, when benediction is given, that sense of sending into the world after an Abardian sense of being mm-hmm. gathered and not built is critical. I think, you know, my, my embrace of missional theology over the years has reordered my sense of priority of liturgy that someone who loves the word preach, the sermon always was the highlight for me, and I still like mm-hmm. preaching. But for me, it really has become the benediction. And I, mm. I maybe it's because I'm a guest preacher now, mostly as a professor of the college. But when I, when I stand on chancel steps and raise hands to bless at the end, I think, wow, I, I don't know these people. I may know some of them. But even if I know them, I have no idea where they're going this week. I have no idea the conversation. Yeah, and you're not going to be, be having in. that phone call or visiting the hospital. Right, but but even that sense of like, I don't know where they're going, and I hope that in the worship of Father, Son, and Spirit that we've just participated in, I hope they've been equipped adequately, adequately to to bear that divine love in the world, right? Because as, as the community gathered in worship, I mean... All that we do is is hopefully ending in, in doxology, and and yet it's shaping us at the same time mm. for our life in the world. And so, you know, that sense of um, how are we um, shifting from a consumer of religion approach to, as Daryl Gooder would say, people come into church with the, the name tag disciple, and as they leave, they flip it to apostle, right? That they're going out to, to bear witness to the truth of the gospel in their lives. No, I, I find that very interesting. And is is there a sense that, that you're calling for um, in, in these moments where where you're you're pronouncing a, a blessing and, and a vocational call on, mm. on congregations that you are not necessarily an active member of? There's there's almost a, a transcendence there that you you are connecting not just in a local church aspect, but that as the church, church the church universal, that mm-hmm. there that there is some there's there are ways that the church transcends the local gathering. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're speaking to? Yeah, yeah, that sense in which, of course, we're connected to the global church and surrounded by the communion of saints above, but more that just sense of of equipping. I think I, I feel most encouraged when you pick it up pretty quickly when you're in a worshiping congregation, where there is a sense that people are are being equipped for um, their life of faith when they're not together, hmm. right? I mean, that's New Begin's language, of course, is um, sign instrument foretaste of the kingdom is what local church is about and the hermeneutic of the gospel, right? It's we work out what it means to follow Jesus, not in abstract ways, but in the particularities and peculiarities of sitting with people that we probably wouldn't choose mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. hang out. I, I would choose to hang out with all mm-hmm. of you guys anyway. <laughs> but so I've never gone to church with you. No, it's true, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, there's that sense in which I'm always fascinated about how God is knitting together a people. And, you know, I, I mean, I was raised, you know, with the old, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors and see all the people. I mean, that's, we've known that church is people, okay, not buildings necessarily. I mean, Ecclesia is what, 114 times mentioned in the New Testament, never a building, always the called out, summoned people of God, public assembly. But what do we do with those people? It's not just warm bodies gathered. Like what is God doing with those people when they gather to confess and to pray and to sing and to hear the word and to take sacrament um, and to give of their tithes and offerings. What what is God shaping? What is he molding that people into? That part fascinates me. You kind of, you draw a picture of that moment of pronouncing benediction and, and, uh, and blessing. 
I've shared that as well. And, yeah. and even if it is the congregation where you preach each week. Of course. And, but when it's not, the, the slight difference that's there. And I think it speaks to David, some of the things we've been speaking about in these conversations, the ambiguity mm. that can be present both in vocation and in the identity of the church. Then in that moment, it's like a first little taste of moving away from that ambiguity in a negative sense to the reminder of, oh, right, this is who we are. We don't exist as who we are without walking out, (laughs) without um, being sent. And even people who have a rudimentary understanding of what that means, I know what it means as a minister to see the faces of of people going, right, this matters in the world. And there's something, there is something that is really encouraging and beautiful there. Mm -hmm. So let me walk into that a little bit just to, so that I can understand what you were saying. May God bless you. May God know your name. That's what blessing is, huh? Mm. In the Hebrew Bible. To be, to know your name. May God bless you and keep you. Keep. That is, may you be at ease Mm. in the midst. And then that line, that extraordinary line, May God make his countenance mm-hmm. to shine upon you. Mm. God's countenance, I mean, is this what you, what you mean in part by speaking about apostles and being sent, mm. being called to gather and then called out? Mm-hmm. What is being called out? Is, does this mean that the worship is intended to clarify your mind and your heart so you can regard God's countenance mm. shining mm. upon you and the life of the world wherever you may see it? Amen to that. Mm-hmm. So countenance is what one witnesses. Mm. I love that. But it is, isn't it? Like as you, David, share that, and as I picture those moments and feel them, it is then with the next words or the pre, you know, and that one word. So go. That the countenance, if it was just contained, just if I had just had it in my own private little mm-hmm. box, wouldn't have the blessing and, and the and the power mm-hmm. and even the comfort that make his you know countenance shine upon you turn towards you grant you peace so now go in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit mm-hmm. that that is that, that countenance is is part of the moving into the world mm-hmm. living your faith in the world yeah. anyway well i was wondering about the other way around I think I was. Because <laughs> I haven't thought about it like this before. Mm. I mean, that, that benediction is so strong for me because my, you know, my father would work late when I was a little child and he would come up to our bedroom and put his hands on my head. If he came home late, I might be sleeping. I might wake up a little bit. And he'd always pray that prayer. Mm. And um, at the time, the word countenance, the countenance of God, mm certainly uh, took root in my mind. My sense is that the countenance of God is, is revelatory. Mm-hmm. You know, it is something that addresses us. It addresses us in and through the life of the world. Yeah. It's not something we bring. Mm-hmm. It's not something we believe. Amen. It addresses us when we in the life of the world, yeah. we see a moment of mercy, a moment of regard, a moment of graciousness, mm-hmm. a moment of wonder. Yeah. So this notion of witnessing them mm-hmm. and um, of being called out, why? Is it to be called so that one can enter in? 
to the life of the world so that one may have some chance of witnessing the countenance mm-hmm. that is there in the life of the world. Because it's there in the life of the world. Because yeah. it's God's world. Yeah. And, and why is it that too often in the Christian community that we have set church against the world, mm-hmm. right? And, and perhaps present company excluded, but we have all been in places where um, a scholar I deeply respect of the Free University of Amsterdam, Stefan Pass, has described this as Christians who look at the world as a black canvas yeah. on yeah. which Satan paints. Yeah. Right? And um, if that's your... He is in Amsterdam, after all. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. But there's that sense in which, no, and obviously he's not speaking in favor of that, but he's just describing that yeah. as a worldview. And if that is the way, and look, let's be honest, I've heard people describe the North Shore of Vancouver as a dark place. Oh, dark, so spiritually, you know, yeah. Spirit, you know, oh. cause clergy yeah. meetings. You, that was big, oh, like 15, 20 years sure, ago. Sure, sure. So we have to redeem this Nobody place goes to church kind of here. Thing, it's because right? doing things they wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, they're having more fun. But there's that sense in which, what a difference to hear you describe it that way, David, right? That that what if we are sending people into the world with an expectation of revelation that God Mm -hmm. will disclose something of who God is in their everyday, ordinary Mm -hmm. lives? And, And what my hope is, is that an active life of discipleship prepares people to my language would be kind of notice, name, and nurture God's mm-hmm. presence when when God shows up, right? Um, because David Fitch is helpful to me on this in the sense that um, it 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 requires Christians equipped to say, I, I think that's God. I, I don't know for sure, but that, that seems in kind of, mm-hmm. in keeping with God's character, what just happened in this family, in this neighborhood, in this moment, in mm-hmm. this experience of creation that we can't expect our affable agnostic or angry atheist neighbor to use that kind of language. They're experiencing the same thing, but mm-hmm. that's where the witness is, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Is in is in gesturing or pointing towards God's redeeming activity that is kind of moving towards the healing of the nations. And um, I hope that's what we're doing when we gather for worship and not just singing our favorite songs and that kind mm-hmm. of thing, so... Well, and I think it's it speaks to, um, yeah, w- how how the church understands the church's function to mm-hmm. be. Uh-huh. I I know often in in my evangelical upbringing there there was a lot of pitting of the church against the world, the sacred versus the secular, mm-hmm. and and that anything. The good to be seen in the world would be brought by Christians, mm-hmm. preferably Baptists in my faith tradition, <laughs> um, to the world. Mostly Baptists. Mostly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There may be a few others that do something too. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. But They're I, just another type of Baptist, the others who are doing good work. <laughs> Secret Baptists. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and I think that, that there's something so beautiful in in understanding that there isn't a lack of God outside of the church. That that the church doesn't get to have some sort of exclusivity on on the revelation of the divine. Mm-hmm. And and I think there may be there you're pointing towards that that people may not have specific like vocabulary, like common vocabulary towards it, but I think there is part where as the church, we are called to, to see and to recognize God in all of God's creation. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I appreciate the, the call not to just w- towards what would make me feel good as, as a member of, of a congregation, but that I am to be sent out to witness the beauty and the revelation and the transcendence mm. of God mm. In, in all of creation mm-hmm. and in all of encounters and to to notice that and to be in awe of that. Mm-hmm. St. Seraphim of Savo, I think it was him who said, um, live your life in the light of God's love. 
and bear witness to that. But only if you must use words. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, it was a telling way of shifting the accent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the church, the Presbyterian church, your church, and you're at St. Andrews, the younger generation is coming along. Um, how are you helping them think about the ecclesia hmm. and what or who the church is? Yeah. Well, one of the things I should have mentioned that I find personally really exciting is that the the makeup of the student body has been changing year after year after year. And the presence now here in Canada, including at the seminary of the global church, has changed everything. And so now you have in class people who are seated beside someone born and raised in a small, declining, mainline congregation. And on either side of them, you have um, uh, Presby Costal from Indonesia, who only knows a megachurch experience while still being a minority as a Christian in a Muslim-majority country. You have, um, you know, um, evangelical Presbyterian student on the other side from Brazil, and then seated behind is someone from South Korea. And so what the church is becomes a fascinating conversation because our we've been kind of slowly um, medicated into this narrative of church decline, to which the global students say, well, that's, that's fascinating, not that's not my experience of the church, and Sounds like you guys might need some help here in Canada, right? Uh, and so um, I find that absolutely fantastic. And so what what is the church? I think the church that God is bringing is from the global south. And I'm excited about that. And I, I think the greatest danger then is to domesticate or habituate um, those who are arriving from elsewhere into the mainline you know, narrative of decline. And that that is a concern of mine, and I know it's shared by some colleagues as well, that we are basically trying to take those that have such tremendous gifts of translating the gospel into various subcultures in our Canadian context and trying to kind of sanitize their, their, um, uh, their ability to minister to this wide variety of people in order to make them look and kind of act like the rest of us. So that that's that's um, a challenging piece, but I find that really exciting as well. You mean almost to have like a paternalistic, like, oh, you're so, that's so nice you bring those yeah. old ideas or something. Right, right. So, you know, I, I'm uh, focused often in mission and evangelism, mm-hmm. and those are two terms that are not always well received in the main line. Mm. And yet, you know, for our international students, that's something that, that they just come preloaded with, right. right? And so to try and make sure that they are not told, well, we don't do that in mm. Canada, right? Um, it to say, well, maybe that's the reason why we're in trouble, right? We, we no longer have the ability to translate that a crucified Jew rules the cosmos into language that makes sense for people that have never been inside a church mm. before, right? So, um, yeah, I think the global church is a place of tremendous encouragement for me in my teaching, mm-hmm. and I see it in the student body, and um, so I just pray for more of that. So the whole matter of uh, this narrative about the decline of the church mm-hmm gets wrapped up in the decline of the West. Very much. And it's so odd Mm -hmm. that people that identify as Christians on both the right and the left buy it. Mm -hmm. They both buy it for different reasons. On the left, they buy it because they think the decline of the West is good Mm -hmm. because it's the end of colonialism. Right. And uh, on the right or... The evangelical world and other parts of the conservative Christian world. Uh, they also want to see Christendom come to an end because, yep. after all, the Catholic Church was the whore of Babylon. Mm. And uh, so that's good that that's happening. 
But I think that's a very important uh, accent you put there. Mm. Hmm. Because the Christian church, I mean, this is the other thing that's so, so, so striking to me, and it, it goes to your comment about your childhood, Baptist childhood and what have you. It's so, you know, when, when Jesus speaks about um, loving your enemies, mm. my sense is this is not about heroic virtue. Uh, it's often been thought of that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. It's not about heroic virtue at all. It's about a real simple psychological insight. Mm. Uh, if you have enemies, you ingest them. You become them. Mm-hmm. So if we look at the evangelical church, whose enemy has been the secular world, the way they've mm-hmm. understood, they have, what church has ingested the secular world more? Yeah than the evangelical church. Mm-hmm. It is ingested at lock, stock, and barrel. Yeah. Not all of it, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, but much of it has lock, stock, and barrel. That's what happens when you have enemies. Mm. In, in the Orthodox Church where I worship, we have, you know, we have similar kinds of struggles, but at the end of the liturgy, when you're going forward to kiss the mm-hmm. icons mm-hmm. and kiss the hand cross that the priest is holding... And if you like him, kiss his hand. He likes to have his hand kissed. Who doesn't? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Me. <laughs> it's common to sing uh, sing this hymn that was actually uh, written uh, in the face of um, 1453 and the the Sultan's uh, breaching of the walls mm-hmm. of Constantinople, which is "Give victory to the Orthodox." people over their enemies Mm. and there's a couple more lines to it but that's not really what it says what it says is give victory and we got to look at what victory means here to the orthodox people over the enemy Mm -hmm. we've just gone through the liturgy yeah we have no enemies Mm. and of course if you want to snuggle up to origin we don't even have satan as an enemy Mm -hmm. ultimately in the end that is we also as christians pray for the salvation Uh even of the evil one so the the secular sacred split or the sacred and profane split i mean in some christian theology certainly the one that i stand in that kind of dualism doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The cosmos belongs to God. Right. Mm-hmm. That never ended. Mm-hmm. The fall mm-hmm. did not end that. Yeah. The fall changed human beings' minds. It did not change the nature of being mm-hmm. and the cosmos. So um, the mm-hmm. danger of that prism isn't so much what it says about the, sac- about the secular, mm-hmm. isn't so much what it says about the profanum, it's what it's doing to you mm-hmm. and to your sight, mm. to your vision, to what you can see. So you don't see clearly. Mm-hmm. You see through that fog. And that is a tragedy mm. because it lessens the world. It lessens your life. That's yeah. interesting. It's... it's uh, and depending on our own experience, our growing up, our experience with the church, what kind of church we're in, Allison talking about her experience. There's a got a Miriam Taves book here somewhere, her recent book called Fight Night. It's there. It's over there. Is it as good as a complicated kind? Yeah, I think it's one of her best ever. But nice. it, she's got typical Miriam Taves writing where it comes out of you know her Mennonite experience yeah. and background. And there's a character that is referenced a lot called, named Willet Braun. Willet Braun was clearly a leader <laughs> of the church and the, and the colony, the community that was, you know, legalistic and, and condemned everything and everyone. And, and the grandmother in the story at one point is talking to her granddaughter and she just starts ranting, just ranting, ranting, ranting. And it's actually written on the page is dot, 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 dot. It's like a page. And, uh, the grandmother winds up saying, "Those men, those old, they stole everything from us. They stole our lust. They stole our love. They stole our, they stole this. They stole." But then I think the peak of the whole kind of diatribe is, they stole God from us. So this, you know, what it is that prevents your seeing, and that for you know, as we talk about the church and who is the church, that 
what was our complicity at times in the church or where in 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 preventing people from seeing God in 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 the very work of the church itself right so someone who's coming from a secular you know doesn't know what it, you know, and these people are there now right we yeah. we are ministering in that time when when we know people who like you've done funerals where yeah. what hymns do you want hymns and you know they want an elvis song or something yeah. like that right um and so it really is post-christian in that in that regard mm-hmm. so their seeing would be blocked by their experience but for somebody who was immersed in the church there's an aspect of that which then that's the thing they have to kind of battle it as well is to, to see that divine right it's mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so that's an interesting thing i think right now ministering that's new for me too i think mm-hmm. even though i experienced some of that so yeah, yeah. what um how do you stand on the shoulders of those who come before hmm. in your own experience say more there's so much i could say to that specifically in like you you think of tradition so you've worked in the united church the presbyterian church the uh how are you thankful for those who've come before you generations before and oh yeah i just think about tonight i'll have dinner with my childhood minister who's in town visiting and someone who had um tremendous impact on me when my father died as a teenager and i walked from the church and his constant presence along with the elders reintroduced me to um, a Christ who suffers with us. So my life, like all of ours, has been deeply marked, blessed, and changed by, you know, those kind of giants of the faith that have gone before us. And, you know, I'm, I'm an amateur historian. I've always loved history. History is important to me. And so the traditions that we emerge from um, must be studied and gleaned for wisdom and evidence of God's activity. I mean, to the, the simplistic critique that I have to kind of shut down quickly in class with students is somehow that God went missing mm. <laughs> during 1,500 years of Christendom, right? I said, well, that's a very interesting deist take on, yeah. on church history, right? Maybe you'd like to yeah. have a look again. I mean, the work I've done on on St. Patrick, right? The yep. book I published on him asking the questions, are there lessons from an, um, a missionary to a pre-Christian culture for us as missionaries to a post-Christian, post-Christian culture? There's all kinds of great wisdom in in the tradition. And so, you know, we, we build on that. I think the, the danger is when we pine for what is no longer there. And probably never was, and, and the way we imagined Correct, it. Mm-hmm. right? You know, and, and so I've, I've started to clip the kind of amount of teaching I do for our students because now I'm reaching a stage where I realize my students don't remember Christendom, mm-hmm. and fewer and mm-hmm. fewer of the churches that they go to serve will be in that pining stage. You'll always have mm-hmm. a few people on pastoral visits and so forth, but I still remember, you know, arriving at a congregation and being told, you know, pastor, we used to have a Sunday school of yeah, 500 oh yeah, and yeah, we can't yeah, wait yeah. for you to get us back there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. And then you find out that of those 500 kids, you know, almost none of them still go to church. Yeah. And you realize, well, that was an expensive daycare program. You know, what were we actually teaching them? Were we teaching them how to how to follow Jesus? So, you know, it, it, there needs to be critique of, of the tradition, but I'm so grateful Man, for it. Amen. And, um you know, if there weren't monks copying the Gospels um, by hand, we wouldn't we wouldn't have the Gospels today, right? So we're all the way through. We've been blessed, and the question then is: This in our generation, what's our witness, right? What's our what's for as long as God gives us breath? What's what's the way in which we're contributing to that ongoing, evolving revelation that leads, thank God, to the tell us that we just cannot cannot imagine how good it's going to be, mm-hmm. right? And so the, the healing of the nations is something that I pray for regularly and, and just await God's good work. Amen. Amen. David, do you have any more points or questions? Reflections to close us off? I think you spoke to this a bit at the beginning, but I'll ask it here at the end. When people are gathered, separated is often the term that's used. The gathering community, which prays and worships together. One's liturgical family. 
Um, I know in my experience, the actual presence with others in a continuous way has been very helpful for me in that I have come to realize that in a modest way, my liturgical family is a ship of fools. Mm -hmm. The whole ball of wax is there, Mm -hmm. the bright and capable, the dull Mm -hmm. and tedious, uh, those that I profoundly disagree with about politics or about some other issue, those that give me delight. And in, in my tradition, it's customary to, if one is going to confession, for one to go to confession most often at Vespers, Saturday night, before the Sunday liturgy. And it was very touching to realize that people who I had some appreciation for, but who I tended to reduce to something. I think of a man in my church who's politically very significant in Canada on the, on the far right, and who I've come to appreciate, but, you know, his politics sometimes seemed to me to verge on fascism. Mm-hmm. And, and I had a habit of thinking of him only as that. Mm-hmm. And to see him, because confession is a spiritual discipline, mm-hmm. not for you, it is that too, but it's for the community. Mm-hmm. All confession is done within the context of the congregation. Mm-hmm. You don't say the words to the congregation, but you, you bend your head by the cross of Jesus Christ and the priest places his stole over your head and you speak about what's getting in your way. Mm -hmm. To see that as we chant, as is customary in Vespers, we always chant, blessed is the man. Mm -hmm. And as you chant that and you see a person you know, not intimately, but you know these people, you know them fairly well, it refreshes your eyes. Mm. And when they rise up from that, sometimes with tears in their eyes, and the priest puts his arms around them and kisses them on the cheek and mm. says, now put it all behind you. Mm. Resurrect. It is no more. Mm. Face the world that God has given you. Mm. You want to go up to that person, we often do in our church, and... Uh, and you touch them, and you kiss them, and you bless them, and you express your gratitude. Mm. Because they've enlarged one's own sense. When our sense of another person is enlarged and not colonized by our passions, Mm. because that's my passion, maybe his too, but I'm responsible for mine, Mm. of seeing somebody that way. To have that lifted is is an extraordinary gift. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, the gathered ecclesia is, to my mind, this amazing place where deep finitude can Mm -hmm. be felt Mm -hmm. and witnessed Mm -hmm. and encountered and can address us, the finitude of all my brothers and sisters, Mm -hmm. which which reveals to me my finitude, my limitations, my missing of the mark. Mm And at the same time, because it is the church, and these things always come hand in hand, the sense of the transcendence, you know, the language Mm -hmm. of the transcendence of the liturgy or of the Psalms Mm -hmm. uh, or of the texts of of Jesus or you have it in many hymns, that language of transcendence is the great language of human finitude. Mm. They dance together. They can never be separated. So my sense is the gathered ecclesia, and there are many ways that things can occur, but there is something, it seems to me, about the gathered ecclesia that places you in the presence of the human story Mm -hmm. with a richness that I cannot imagine getting any other way Mm -hmm. and existentially addressing you Mm -hmm. it addresses us through our brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. and in that way gives us a glimpse 
of the divine glory. Mm. Amen. Indeed. Thank you so much. And Ross, thank you. It's a pleasure. We're really grateful for your work, mm. um, for the many connections you're building and establishing. So you're more and more all the time. <laughs> it's good and, to be with uh, you. And I hope thank that you. you're able to kind of, you know, pace yourself in that and all those other kinds of things. But thank you for taking the time to, to come and speak with us and to be part of this. So really grateful. My Great. pleasure. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks so everyone. Rector's Cupboard releases a new episode every other Friday. The podcast is a production of Reflector Project. Hosts are Todd Weeb and Allison Williams. Cupboard master for tastings and locations is Ken Bell. Production and social media by Amanda Mina. For past episodes and other content, visit rectorscupboard.ca. Thanks for listening.